In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Yoda, hello. For today's episode, we're heading back over to the Middle East to hear words of wisdom from the chairman of the Emirates Green Building Council and a board member of the World Green Building Council. Mr. Saeed Al-Abbar was awarded in 2010 the title of International Young Consultant of the Year by British Expertise in the UK. In 2012, Saeed was named in Gulf Business's Top 30 Under 30 Age of Top Achievers in the Middle East and North African region, I think comprised of something like 19 countries. In addition to trying to change the world, Saeed is director of AESG, a firm specializing in the provision of specialist consulting and commission services throughout the Middle East, Europe, and Africa through its offices in Dubai, London, and Abu Dhabi. He holds a first-class master's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Bath. Welcome to the show, Saeed. Thank you very, very much, and uh, good evening to you both. Saeed, you know, we get a lot of high achievers here on the Edifice Complex uh, podcast, and I'd say you fit in with the rest of them. So how did you end up as one of the world's leading voices on sustainable buildings? Tell us your story. Interesting one, actually. I mean, my, my journey started really not in the building sector. When I started in university, my um, course was really focused on sort of aeronautical engineering. And that's sort of where I was originally most interested in sort of the aerospace sector. When I sort of got through the first few years, I spent a year working in industry where I worked in in the oil and gas sector, predominantly working on sort of the same turbines that you use in the aerospace industry as well. And it was it was a great experience and had a great time doing it. But what I sort of maybe came to realize was that a lot of the great things in those sectors have already kind of been achieved and they've the sectors work really really well um there isn't an equivalent of this podcast in the oil and gas and aerospace sector to be honest (laughs) (laughs) um smart guy yeah but anyway when i went went back and i finished my master's after that i sort of stumbled on my sort of final dissertation research project which wasn't something i was looking at at the time but one of the, the professors in the university was and this is on a mechanical engineering course was looking specifically at the construction sector and why projects in the construction sector always go over budget. And, and she was taking this from a, from a sort of very different standpoint of, you know, things seem to work reasonably well in the aerospace sector. Why are they so bad in the construction sector? So I sort of took that as my sort of final thesis and spent sort of six months sort of looking at it. Um, and when I finished, I said, well, this sector is incredibly broken. There is. <laughs> hey, yes, it is. <laughs> it is. And... Uh, for any sort of young graduate going out in the industry, you want to go into something where you can can make a positive change and, and leave leave your mark. I said, I think it's going to be quite easy in this. Uh, <laughs> in this there's a lot to be done. Um, and I think coupled with that, I had a, I guess, personal interest in sustainable development and the issues around climate change. I can, and, and I sort of saw that this, this sector is 
not only the one with the most challenges, but it's the one with the highest opportunity. It's actually going to be one where change is going to be at the front line, where the way we sort of design, build and operate our cities is really going to be the make or break if, we, if we're able to overcome this, this climate change challenge. And yeah, that's, I guess, sort of how I got into the sector. And yeah, worked sort of in consulting and got involved in various industry professional groups uh, as we went along. And that's sort of my journey and where I've ended up today. And I guess sort of come about that by just sort of always being open to, to opportunities and challenges that, that come along. Um, hasn't been sort of a, a planned out path where I've got to, like I think with many of us. And yeah, that's it really. Okay, so I've got two pins to put in this. One, shame on you for not solving a construction industry's problems with your thesis. You should have solved that before you graduated. Bad job. (laughs) Seriously, though, for any graduates or young engineers or young, you know, people who are early in their career in property, there's some good wisdom there, right? Go, you should choose to compete where you have the maximum advantage with the skills in your bag, right? So you go to a target-rich area. As you say, aerospace, right? It's full of bleeding geniuses. It's full of Elon Musk types, overachievers, A-type personalities, uh, OCD everywhere. Why would you go there (laughs) and get beaten to death, (laughs) right? You know, as a strategy, that is an awesome career strategy. You've got to have that presence and you know, that, the ability to look at that macro level early. So just for you know, young young professionals out there, think like that. Go where you have the most advantage, right? Yeah, and I, I, would, I would add to that. I mean, you and I have had discussions around this, Adam, where we, we see there is a bit of a brain drain into our industry that young graduates are not wanting to get into construction engineering. It's, it's not as glamorous as you know, working for, for a Google or a tech company or a space mission to Mars or some of these things. But, but I, yeah, I would agree. I think for people that want to make a positive change, um, you know, this is an industry which is which is right. I really think that there is going to be a lot of change coming, in, particularly in the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years in our sector. And yeah, it's it's something we need to communicate better to, to sort of graduates coming through, so that they do choose to take a part in this in this industry. And yeah, there are there are challenges, there are things which don't work very well, but it's also a great industry, and we we achieve great things as well. Um, I'd agree. We definitely need to kind of communicate that as an industry better so that we don't the best talent doesn't sort of drift away from the sector yeah, yeah agreed so you, you made a statement there about change is coming as opposed to well no change is coming and I think that you're, you have a, a point there but that change is going to come through leadership mm. and how do you how do you see leadership today making those changes because I see lots of countries lots of organizations political bodies that struggle with the change. A lot of people are aware of it, but making change happen is, is a different story altogether. What do you have to say on that? Well, I think we're seeing a shift in that as well. And I, I think the change, the leadership in change is, is not going to come from countries. I think it's going to come from cities for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I was at the, the, the climate change talks in Paris. I've been to the ones in years before that. And I think the, the ones in Paris, which was sort of, where they were, so there was a big difference. There was kind of two factors. One was people finally got realised that, that we need to put things to one side and 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 get this thing agreed because we are now actually dealing with the consequences of climate change and, and, and states were being hit with it. Uh, countries' budgets were being hit financially. Um, there was disastrous events, loss of life. So one one part was that people came to that event. People do always have political agendas. You know, countries do have what they want to achieve. From negotiations, but they're able to put those to one side and say, whatever happens, we need to come to an agreement. 
So that was one part. But the second part was that the role of cities was sort of brought to prominence um, um, during source booth through platforms like C40, through the, the role that mayors had a more prominent platform than they did in previous years. It was sort of a realization that the cities are really going to be the, the front line of this. And I think there's there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one, the issues around sustainability are a consequence of cities. You know, we talk about, you know, half the world's population now live in urban areas. Most of the, the world's energy, most of the world's resources are used up in cities. But also cities are the, the economic engine of nations. It's, it's where the majority of the GDP is spent. It's where you've got that critical mass of, of innovators, of entrepreneurs. So it's also where you can make the positive change. And likewise, cities are not bogged down with with the sort of the politics that you might have at a federal or national level. City mayors do have, or, or, or city leaders, leaders of city councils, do have a lot more autonomy to make change without being caught up in political debate and having to run things through parliament, etc., etc. So I've seen the most promising sort of initiatives for, for sustainable development, and particularly climate change, has, has come through cities. And I think city leadership is going to become key. And that's going to run alongside this sort of mega trend we're seeing of, of, of people moving to, to urban areas. I mean, as, as you know, I'm, I'm in India at the moment for a conference, and this is really the front line of mass urbanization. And we see sort of the, the consequences of looking straight out your window. But some of the figures are, figures are startling. We're seeing that by 2050, we're almost going to have a doubling of the number of people living in urban areas. And to put that into context, that's 75 million people a year are going to be moving into cities. That's ten, almost 10 times the population of New York every year moving into cities. So we need to build 10 New Yorks, effect almost, per year but to accommodate that many new jobs in cities, that many new homes, that many new schools, that many new hospitals. So the challenge is immense, and, and cities really have to be the, the front line of this. And without leadership of cities, we're, we're going to be in trouble. I, I agree with it's that. Awesome. So it's just to paraphrase then, what we're saying here is change is a sustainability issues are an emergent property of urbanization, right? Yeah, in essence, that that's what I think we're going to see. Is, yeah, is the I mean, I'm uh, I'm in Jaipur at the moment, beautiful city just down the road from Delhi, and Delhi suffers from the worst air pollution in the world. I think it's consistently the levels of air pollution or the air pollution index are three times what the World Health Organization calls as harmful. Their chief minister came out recently and said that Delhi has become a gas chamber. And walking through Delhi is equivalent of, of, of smoking fifty cigarettes a day. So we're seeing we're seeing these consequences, you know, beyond climate change. You know, air pollution uh, issues are, are actually killing people. So yeah, the, the challenges are huge um, that we have to face. Well, that's the soundbite for this podcast. I think you've just nailed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting to see that uh, Ab and I were talking earlier about. You know, the, at the street level, the average person, the Jill and Jack of society, I mean, so federal governments can't deal with it. So it's getting moved down to the cities, down to municipalities, then ultimately it hits the street. How do how does the average Jill and Jack, you know, the average person come to grasp with, with these terms? Because many of them, particularly if you take the, say, the bottom 15% of society that can't afford to do the necessary, they, they don't want to be bad people. Adam, that was your word. You know, they don't want to be bad people. And that's very true. You know, you take a single mom that's raising three children on her own. She doesn't want to be a bad person in society, but how does she deal with all of this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the, 
not that we've given up, but I think we, we there's a realization that the naivety of trying to to change things by just getting people to do things out of the goodness of their heart is not going to work. I mean, it's as I said, I'm I'm in I'm in India at the moment, and to the vast majority of the population, you go through the streets, climate change, sustainability, or you know air pollution levels somewhere down the road is not on their agenda. Their, their agenda is driven by how am I going to, what am I going to eat in an hour's time? Um, how am I going to make sure my, my children are healthy? How am I going to make sure they're safe? Where am I going to sleep tonight? Sustainable issues and, you know, do I want to do the right thing because it's going to make air quality better in New York? It's, it's not on the agenda. We really need to make this an economic motivator and make it easy for people to make the right decision. And I think we've got a real opportunity now, particularly with the advent of technology and the sort of digital economy that's coming through, but also the sort of informal economy that can be stimulated through technology. You take, there's, there's some great initiatives that I've seen here, even in India, where sort of the government has, has sort of leveraged the use of technology to be able to create economies that are going to promote sustainability, whether it's a platform where people can, without having to be part of a company or a business, collect rubbish in the streets, bring it to recycling plants and get paid for it or get some coupons for it on their app, whatever it might be. And they're able to, to benefit from that. In the same way, you know, on a, on a large scale, Uber has been able to to provide jobs and mobilize people in, in that sort of car ride, car sharing space. Then we're going to see some opportunities come up in cities um, where technology can be used, where it provides economic opportunity for people sort of in sustainable sectors. You know, what's interesting... I mean, I mean, if you think about uh, uh, Airbnb, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's a whole world full of, of hotel rooms that just happen to be in people's houses, right? So rather than build more buildings, which we don't, I mean, obviously, build some buildings are needed, but if we can if we can avoid building buildings, then of course the resources stay in the ground. We don't put the pollution in the air, and we don't have to deal with the destruction later on. The inventory is there. We just have to find a way to use it, I guess, right? It's sort of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we've got no choice now. You know, talking about over 6 billion people being in, in cities, we can't afford to be wasteful, not only with resources, but with the, the buildings. I mean, at best, you know, even take a very efficient building, it's being used 40% of the time. You know, mega cities, big metropolis cities with the rate of people moving into them, um, they're going to have to squeeze every last drop out of their assets and resources, whether that's their energy resources or whether that's their building assets, their public transport systems, their roads. They're really going to have to become smarter and more efficient at that. And I think things like the sharing economy or what, what they refer to in London as the gig economy, where yeah. you know, you're know you doing a certain role for a certain period of time and then you go on to your other job. I think these things are really going to sort of transform how cities sort of work and operate. And actually, I was, um, incidentally, the sector that's kind of leading sort of some of this discussion is actually the, the car manufacturers. I was invited uh, by one of the, the car manufacturers to join their sort of think tank sessions about where they think sort of urban design and cities are going to look like in 2050. And, you know, and these guys are way ahead of where we're thinking from sort of professionals and, and, and city planners. You know, they're already talking about, you know, people aren't going to own motor cars in, in 50 years. They're betting their futures on the fact that our current habits for driving are going to be completely changed. And what's normal to us or our generation saying that, yeah, we're all going to have a house and we're all going to have a car. That concept's probably going to change. And, out of necessity and also cultural changes that people are going to say, well, I don't necessarily need to have my own car anymore. And we're already seeing that in, in cities like like London, um, where people just don't want to own a car because of the cost and the hassles that come with it. So I think there will be change and it's probably going to be driven, as I said, at the city level and, and particularly through our more sort of tech-savvy younger generation um, that have different ideals as well. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You know, 
going back to your point about collecting rubbish and making that a paid activity, that's a great idea because if you take the analogy with hunting, whether vegans like it or not, extinct populations of elk and bears and that in North America have been revived through hunting and hunting licenses and monetizing these animals, right? Mm. Unless you provide a value to them, they get wiped out. So if you could somehow monetize waste and recycling mm. and they create an economy around it, that is the way to go, right? I really like that idea. Yeah, and I think I think now it's very difficult to do that at a at a sort of bureaucrat level, at a city level or at a major company level, because there's things just get bogged down and it doesn't get done. But where we have the opportunity is to be able to do that at a very, very micro level where you're engaging directly with your person on the street uh, who's unemployed and he can earn an income from doing doing something like this and using apps and technology to engage that. I think that's going to be a real opportunity. And we've seen the success stories, some examples of other sectors where that's way that's worked. And I think governments are, uh, are seeing that at, at this, this event I'm at here at the moment at the Smart City Conference. Um, you're seeing some examples from, from other cities around the world where where I guess sort of uh, city leaders, mayors, they've, they've, they've realized that we can engage citizens and the population to be involved in sort of municipal services, carry these municipal services out and create just an economic model around it and then just leave it to that private sector to work. And, and you know, big surprise, it actually is going to become more effective. You know, that if you're able to monetize it, create this this sort of micro-economy that's driven by, by technology or supported by technology, you'll find the streets are going to be cleaner than if you're leaving it to the, you know, inefficiencies of municipal government services. So there is an opportunity there. And I think, as I said, it's, it's, it's at the city level. We don't need the federal government to be able to achieve these things. That's why I bring it back again that, yeah, city leadership really is the key. I like that. Devolving power to the local municipality. Uh, that's a that's a great concept as a libertarian. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of an app right away that someone could develop and that oh, yeah. says you know, you're walking down the street, you see a bunch of garbage, you call call a you know an app that's got a whole bunch of people who are willing to come pick up the garbage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and that could happen yeah, so these, fast. These yeah, these things are around. I mean, I'm I'm not the most tech savvy, um, as we saw with the issues with trying to connect to this call this morning. Um, <laughs> but but you see some of the stuff that that people are coming up with these days. It really is really is remarkable. I mean, there's someone talking yesterday about this this app they have where they can detect mosquitoes within a certain region and can actually I don't even know how it works, but they can detect the species and the gender of the mosquitoes because that will determine you know is there malaria risks, dengue risks, etc. And this is all on an app platform, and someone can log in and see. Am I safe to in this area or not? Is you know the levels of mosquitoes higher today than it was? And and you know that some of this stuff is baffling. And this is really going to change how sort of cities and and, and countries work. Really, you know what, Adam? I'm thinking that if they can come up with an app that can figure out what mosquitoes are around, they should be able to do it with tax tax thieves and politicians. <laughs> <laughs> so my mind at the moment is is churning with ideas for these apps and monetizing this. This is great. But yeah, think about it. We can put a man on the moon. We can tell what sex a mosquito is and how dense the population is, yet we cannot produce an office with air conditioning that works properly and no defects. What is going on? Yeah. <laughs> good, good question. You know, good question. We have another question we ask our guests and, and maybe – See, it'd be interesting to hear your wisdom on this. We see a lot of high-performance buildings and obviously a lot of not-so-high-performance buildings. 
they get constructed where, you know, if you just take, say, for example, a, a well, in meters, let's say a 20 meter by seven meter or eight meter office, that mm-hmm. maybe 20 or five or 30% of that floor area is unoccupiable because of discomfort, either thermal discomfort, lighting discomfort, sound discomfort, all of that type of stuff. So we harvest from the earth the materials to build these buildings, and then that kind of square footage is not usable because of you know occupant discomfort. That's one office in one building on one block in one city in one place in one country in the world. And now you gross that up to how many offices exist like that. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable by any sense of the definition, even if it is a high-performance building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, there's a lot of lot of inefficiencies in our spaces, as as we know, and as we've we've sort of talked about. But I think it comes back to on a number of levels is bringing it back to the people factor in this. You know, that we we often design buildings and forget that we're actually designing buildings for people. Um, you know, I, I challenged sort of an engineering team on a, on a project recently, saying that do we need to air condition a building? And everyone says, yeah, we we need to. Absolutely, we need to air condition a building. I said, why? That is you know, heresy, what you've just people. said. <laughs> I, said, I said, we don't need to air condition the building. We have to make sure that people are thermally comfortable in the building. And it, those are, although they sound the same, they're completely different. Um, uh, hey, man, I'm so glad to hear you say that. You have yeah. just triggered um, Robert like a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm ready to get on my soapbox. Yeah, and 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 that's that's the, the case is that we we we're hung up by these assumptions <laughs> that we have to build by this floor plate and we have to do this. But if the space is wasted, then you haven't actually built anything. And if right. most of the space you're cooling is is wasted cooling, then again you've not not achieved the objective. So it's it's we as an industry we are hung up in always doing things the same way. You know, the, the, we suffer from the the complex of, oh, we've always done it this way, so we're always going to do it this way. And I think that's a challenge and not criticize. There's good reasons why people do that. It's it's human nature. Um, But that's where I think leadership in our industry is needed is to challenge them and say, can we do things differently? We are, for for a sector that does, you know, has achieved some remarkable things, we are extremely risk averse. People are very, very scared to to do something differently, even even when it makes perfect technical and, and economic sense. Um, and that's, again, where, where leadership is needed. Um, the motivators in our industry is, is geared towards people going for the safe option or going for the option that they've done before because their job's going to be protected. You know, no one, there's a saying, you know, you've never been fired by appointing IBM or uh, yep. whatever, however the, the saying goes. But it's the same thing. No one's, no one's going to lose their job by doing the same thing they did on the last project and then achieving mediocre outcomes on it. People will lose the job if they do something completely different to the other project and it doesn't succeed. Or if they achieve a mediocre outcome by doing something completely different. So you get the same outcome that you've actually tried to try to innovate. But I don't even think that there is a risk of those things happening because some of these new ideas, new innovations, there is technology that's been in existence for 50, 60, 70 years. And it can make perfect sense. We just, we, as an industry, suffer from people who are willing to take a risk and do something differently. Yeah, and I guess part of that is the timescales that we're aggressively put to in our sector that we need to achieve things in such short, short timescales that people get hung up and say, "All right, we need to start working, start doing things," as opposed to actually spending a bit of time thinking how can we do it better and actually achieve the outcomes in a shorter period of time at a lower cost and better quality. But yeah, I think I think that that's part of it. But but that said, there are some real good examples, and there are you know, people that are leading the way and pushing things. Um, 
and you know using these examples as, as, as lighthouses you know beacons to, to kind of guide the way and, and show and I think I think it's really important as well yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, again, an aeronautical engineer I know who will remain nameless called Building Engineers the Mediocre Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But there's a point there, right? Because that goes to what you were saying. You don't get fired for repeating the same average job you did last time. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of – the problem with the built environment is this. There's a lot of different influences, really crushing influences on it, right? So there's user demand. And for mm-hmm. that, that really represents itself as a being an ex-developer myself, as whatever the letting agents tell the developer is being let, that's what they build, right? Boom. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. like uh, if you someone's riding a horse, they always want the next horse. They're not looking for the mm-hmm. Model T Ford, right? And then you've got yeah. crushing pressure the other way, environmental context. So mm-hmm. environmental degradation, pollution, garbage. But there are so many people with their nose in that trough. You've got government. You've got layers of government. You've got environmental regulations. You've got industry. You've got business interests. You've got lobbying groups. You put that, that, that's just like the evil mix of everything you could have together, right? So out of that, nothing good can come as far as I'm concerned, you know, until it becomes an emergency, right? How did, and I'm not a hunter, I've never touched a gun in my life, but how did the deer population in North America come back? Because someone regulated them and made them valuable and made hunters pay to kill them. And now there's more deer in North America than there's ever been, right? So Mm. the question is, you have to, I think the solution is you have to assign a value to doing good things like cleaning up rubbish or there has to be a benefit to a developer who takes that risky step. How do they get rewarded? I don't know. Is it a tax break? Is it... I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but we are at such an inflection point. I blogged about this recently. I think there's a schism in the green building movement of which you are deeply embedded. I think there is a a top and bottom to it, right? There's a top where you have the true believers. They're already in there. They're they're prophesizing there, but they're also virtue signaling, right? They're normally in the top five or 10% of earners. They've got the Tesla. They've got the passive house. they're, They're virtue signaling like crazy, right? And that's not to be bad to them. They're doing it for the right reasons. And you have to create a market, you know, as Elon Musk said, I created the sports car so I could then develop the saloon car, right? But at the moment, I still think we're in that sports car mode. Everyone talks about the passive house or the trophy building. How do we bring that down to the middle and the lower middle level? That's what, that's the thing that's got to be solved. And because you're a genius and an overachiever, I expect you to solve it in the next sentence. Go. <laughs> right. I'll more than a sentence. But, uh, no pressure. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's very easy to, to, to get downhearted by a lot of this and, and the scale of the challenge. But, you know, you have to be optimistic and you have to yeah. believe that this can happen. You know, otherwise, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? I think there's a couple of points to, to pick up. I think, one, I would agree with you. We are at a tipping point. And, you know, there's, there's a saying that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I think that's that's what we're facing in our sector. You know, if we're talking about 75 million people a year, we need to we need to accommodate in cities. You know, that's that's a gargantuan task, you know. Yes. Uh, we take, you know, climate change and, and the, the impacts that we're now now seeing. You know, that's that's huge challenges. And that's that's now transitioning into away from just a few sort of small exercises to actually, you know, Big, big initiatives, and and to take sort of in terms of where, where what's going on now with the sort of the green building movement. I, I would agree with you that, that traditionally, well, not traditionally, in in the past we've been it's been a case of these showcase projects. You know, the you know you've got your 
your lead platinum projects, which was lauded as, as great innovation invention ten years ago, which, which was great. You know, people that led the way in that was was incredible. And now we're seeing, you know, what what I say that the lighthouses uh, of our industry now are, are sort of some net zero, some regenerative buildings. That they're, they're there, and you need to have those before you're able to break into the mainstream. You're not going to jump from zero to the mainstream adoption of of new ways of doing things in one leap. You need people to prove that, that it can be done. Um, taking taking things back to sort of the, the, the Paris Agreement. Um, so as uh, the, the World Green Building Council, we looked at that and said, you know, what, what does that mean for our sector? Because on the face of it, that agreement doesn't sound overly ambitious. You know, limit global warming to two degrees Celsius and try and limit it to, to 1.5 degrees Celsius. You know, we're, we're accepting that we're going to live with the consequences of global warming, but we're trying to limit it. But that agreement, what it translates to in terms of carbon and sector is that even that commitment that was agreed means that we need to effectively decarbonize the global economy at some point between 2050 and 2060. So if you talk about the building sector, what we've said as, as a kind of global green building movement is that we need to, by 2030, say that every new building that's coming up, wherever it is, whether it's you know an informal development in Delhi or you know, a high-end skyscraper in New York, one of your, your blue chip banks. Anything we build from 2030 onwards has to operate, to be designed and built to operate a net zero carbon. And then what we also need to do is, arguably more challenging than that, is that by 2050, we need to retrofit our existing assets and buildings to be operating in net zero carbon you know, within that timescale by 2050. And that is an immense challenge, but that's the least we have to do to at least avoid the most disastrous consequences of, of climate change. I don't want to make the, the sustainability discussion moving purely about climate change, but I think it is the front line and it's maybe the easiest element for people to sort of understand it and, and digest. But that as, as a target, I think, is is a huge challenge that we're facing as, as a sector. However, I don't think achieving it is necessarily going to be a technical challenge or even an economic challenge. I think the technology are there, is there, the people are there, and we have the right catalyst now with technology and, and, and the way we can create economic models around around great innovations and um, to make this make economic sense what was needed is, is leadership for us to say this is what we're going to do uh, and just let let the let the private sector let the great mind industry figure it out from there and and I think this sort of commitment has actually got quite a bit of traction sort of especially especially recently so we, we as sort of the, the world green building council sort of said this is the call to action this is what we need to commit to and actually, just last month, we've had 38 um, entities basically sign up to this commitment. And that has been made up of some of the leading companies around the world. But I guess what's striking is 22 cities have signed up to that commitment. So some, some major cities, London, Paris, Copenhagen, Cape Town, they've signed up to say, yeah, we, we see that commitment, we see that responsibility, we're going to go ahead and do it. And that, that comes back to, to my point that the leadership is going to come from cities rather than from from the national government, because cities are the front line in this sort of climate change discussion. And to me, this is huge, because I strongly believe that we do have some great minds in our industry, uh, and we're able to achieve some great things. All we need to do is be able to set that path. And now that path has been set, that, that these cities have said, yep, yeah, 2030, everything new is going to be net zero carbon. 2050, we have to retrofit everything else. You make that commitment, you make that leadership, people will figure out a way to do it. So you say, you know, almost 50 years ago, we put a man on the moon. You know, yeah. why can't we make buildings, you know, more energy efficient or zero carbon? It's it's not that difficult. You know, technology is there. It, it can be done. Um, the rocket ships don't leak. Do yeah. So, so I, I, I remain optimistic. I think, I think 
these things will change. And we are, we, as I said, we are at a tipping point here. But between between the sort of sustainability movement, the, the climate change discussion, some of these commitments, which which are now going to have to be forced through, the rate that we have to kind of accommodate people in cities. But then add the other sort of spoke to this wheel is the way that sort of technology now is kind of making a shift. Adam, you and I have talked about how as an industry we've we've not become more productive. It's, it's the least productivity gain of any sector. Uh, we've stagnated yeah, yeah. in the last 50 years. We still build buildings the same way that we have. But that, that's changing now. And we've got external industries circling around at the moment. You know, you've got technology companies looking at construction saying, oh, this, this looks interesting. What, what can we do in here? And we are going to see that change because we cannot build a city. Well, we cannot accommodate 75 million people worth of buildings a year if we keep doing it the same way. Economically, it doesn't make sense. Timeline-wise, it doesn't make sense. Quality-wise, it's not going to work. So it's, it's an exciting time, I think. Right, I couldn't agree more with that. And I read today that Amazon have just bought a prefabricate uh, a home builder who specializes in prefabrication. So I guess the play there is they use their economy of scale, drive the cost down, and then they load it with sensors to harvest the data because they're a data harvesting company ultimately, right? So that's right. a good move, I think. As long as you don't mind yeah. Jeff Bezos knowing when you use the toilet. Yeah, for us in the industry, it's, it's basically it's, it's adapt or die. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, we've been able to get away with this sort of, I wouldn't say mediocrity, but, but sort of... No, it is mediocrity. You know, ...apathetic approach to, to new ideas and new innovation. But, mm. you know, if we don't do it, we don't change. The industry is going to be taken over by others. And that would be a shame because I think there are some great minds and, and great people in, in this sector. And I think we need to now look at things and embrace things and say, look, we need to... We need to take that calculated risk. We need to think, you know, let's put in some work. Let's, at that design stage, let's let's look at all these new ideas that we can do. Let's stay up at night and test these things that we can that we can pull together. And let's give it a try. If we're convinced it's going to work, let's do it. Because if we don't, then the alternative is is not very positive. So when I when I very cheekily ask you to solve the problem, actually, you know what? That was a Bloody good answer you gave because I want to <laughs> I want to underline a few things here for for young graduates or super A type personalities listening to this right. What Said said is the technology is here. We're not looking to reinvent the rocket, right? The technology is here. The ability is here. The skill set is here. What's missing are the incentives and the will to do it, right? The leadership and the incentives. Well, well, no right? longer. I think as you said, you know, you had yeah. twenty two cities that have uh, signed up to this. Toronto and Vancouver, where you are, they they yeah. they've committed. So this change is coming. Um, yeah. It's it's just whether you're part of it or not. And, you know, when it gets momentum, then it's the shame game kicks in, and that's when you get the change, right? Where you get enough cities doing it, then you get, well, if he's doing it, I've got to do it, right? That's yeah. that, why they build skyscrapers in the Middle East, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at some point, though, there's, I mean, there's two, I see two challenges here. One is the economics, and the other one is the mechanics of, of retrofitting these buildings. At some point... The wealth that's being held has to be able to sit down with governments and negotiate either tax agreements to move some of that money down into the lower sector to make it affordable for people to upgrade their houses. And maybe it's even something as simple as taking the large home builders and the large home builders going to government and saying, listen, we built 10,000 houses over the last five years. For X number of dollars relief, we'll go back and we'll fix those 10,000 houses. Something along those lines. And so that seems to be one of the challenges. And the other one is that buildings, of course, are built under the codes, which are typically written by federal governments uh, who seem to be disconnected from this whole world. Getting codes to change so that we're no longer dealing with 
minimum requirements, but rather what requirements that are necessary for the future. So those two issues, the economics and codes. And then, of course, and we've seen this before where governments, federal governments in particular, have given incentives, say, for example, for solar thermal systems, and they'll make a whole bunch of money available. People line up to get the money, but then there's insufficient skilled labor to actually put the systems in. And so things don't go well. They, they go poorly, in fact, where systems get installed incorrectly, and then now the owner has a bigger problem than what they did before. There, there are some mechanics that have to be addressed. Skill skill shortage is a key impediment yeah. here, right? There are people with the right skills from trades to all the way up to engineers and architects up, all the way along, not up to architects and engineers, right? You need that whole skill set. There's a massive deficit. The baby boomers are getting old, me being one of them. And, you know, when they retire and they're retiring en masse at the moment, there's a massive knowledge gap being generated which quite frankly I don't think is being filled. We need more people coming through college, university who want to do this and are feeling up for it, you know, to try and make a difference here. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree to an extent. I, th- I think there is, you know, definitely talent that is leaving the sector, but I'm also, you know, again, optimistic around this because I think that the difference now is that the aptitude of, of a younger population to learn is a lot more so than it was 20, 30 years ago. Yes. Yeah, even even the short space in my career. That, yeah. that you know, graduates coming through now, they they can learn something incredibly quickly just because of the way that their their education is, the way that they're hardwired with, with things now, with research and, and finding things. And you're never gonna replace, you know, someone that's done something for 30 or 40 years and has that knowledge base and expertise. You know, that that's invaluable, always will be. But for 90% of the time, you don't necessarily need that. With, Someone with the right aptitude has been given the right training and skill set can pick up a lot of these skills quite quickly. So I don't think it's necessarily the big the big problem we have on the skill set. I think Robert, to come back to to your point on you know how do we you know, create the economic model for, for retrofitting these buildings? Again, I don't think it's it's an economic argument per se. I think it's it's almost an apathy argument because you know you, you take even even buildings that we've looked at in. In, in the Middle East, you know, you're talking about retrofit projects which have a sort of two to five year payback period, you know, internal rates of return 20% plus. You know, you take that to anyone in the investment community, they will, they will throw your money at you. That'd be a um, hard yes to anyone. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> especially in this market, you know, where you're, you're getting interest rates of 0.1, 0.2 negative percent. Yeah. So, so it, it, makes, it makes, you know, perfect economic sense. But it's just, if you go to, let I me mean, take an example, you take a bank building, you know, you speak to the building manager there. The energy bills isn't what's keeping him up at night. What's keeping him up at night is making sure that everyone in that building is working and making money mm-hmm. for the bank. You talk to the CEO that, that this is not on his radar. You know his biggest cost. You know, in aside from any funds they're looking at, is you know it's their staff cost. Energy is not on their radar, and it's it's not that it doesn't make economic sense, and it's not that the. I mean, if you talk about you know government incentivizing, I think the government may need to just incentivize it to kind of kickstart it and then let it kind of run as a, a snowball from there. But it's almost you need to take the decision for these things out of the hands of people that are too busy doing other things. And I think we're starting to see some some initiatives around that where take for example, you know, facility management contracts which which are you know set up in a way that the FM contractor is responsible for the energy bills. Um, and is then that's that is their their bread and butter. That if they're able to save energy, they're able to increase their profit and it's and it's directly relevant to what they're doing. So it's not so much an economic part, it's putting the incentives um, in the right place. And the other point you touched on, on, on building codes, I think 
as an industry global, we have a long way to go in, in this. Building codes have, the way we've gone about them is that something's been written in the 60s or 70s. And for the last 50 years, all we've done is edit that document. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's another soundbite. We're doing well tonight. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And, and we've, we've, made it, we've made it impossible for anyone to understand. And now you've got this, for any one building, you know, let, let's be realistic here. Any building that goes up in, in a developed country, take that in the Middle East, Europe, North America, you've probably got, again, without any exaggeration, 10,000 or 20,000 clauses you need to comply with. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's ridiculous. You know, no, no, one, no one can actually comply with that. No building, you know, unless we, you know, we find a way to comply with all that and we just make every building identical. You know, no building yeah. can do it. Most importantly, no government entity has the resource and the budget to administer that you've complied with these 20,000 clauses. So, you know, we, we need to get smarter with this. And, and, you know, some countries have been, you know, really effective at this. You, you talk about sort of where some of the, the most high-performing buildings are, are coming up, you know, Germany, Denmark, the, the Scandinavian states. You look at their building codes, particularly on the, along energy, I'm not familiar with, with their, their other codes, but from, from looking at their energy codes, they're extremely simple. They're extremely stringent and they're difficult to achieve, but they're very simple. You know, someone can, someone that's not familiar to that market, I, I can pick up that code and say, I know what needs to be done. Right. It's going to be difficult to see this, but I know what needs to be done. Let's be innovative, creative, and really push the boundaries of engineering to, to do this. But the way codes are set up in, in most jurisdictions, you know, having 20,000 clauses, you know, that stifles innovation and creativity. I mean, that, you know, the amount of times, um, I'm sure all three of us have sat in design workshops and we said, oh, we can't do that. It's never going to get approved. You know, and that's, that's a shame. And that's something we really need to look at. And, and until we sort of look at these things and say, look, they're not working, let's start again and keep things very simple. What are we trying to achieve? And let's work from there as opposed to, let's take this document that was written for buildings in the 50s, um, where, you know, the technology doesn't exist now. And what should we change in it, you know, to make it fit for today? I mean, that to me is, is, is mindless. Yeah, that's brilliant. That is, I tell you what, man, you crushed it with that. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, I'm a big fan of performance-based building code. I, that would be a big change. I think that's a small thing that can make a massive difference. Do you know what I mean? And it yeah. could unleash innovation. You know. Yeah, and you have to. Have, I mean, there's people that have got so fed up with this kind of approvals and building code processes, saying that we just need to scrap it and just, you know let it be deregulated. I, I completely disagree. I think that would be a disaster. We do need to regulate things and we do need to have strong regulation because as both of you mentioned earlier that, you know, we need to move away from this sort of, you know, green buildings or sustainable buildings is just the people that can afford the Tesla. It has to be for everyone. And there's no way you can make it something that everyone does without regulation. You know, the incentives in our, our sector are not geared towards it. If for a developer, he's not interested in how that building operates and everything else in operation. He's looking to develop it, sell it on, move it on to, to the next party, which is, yeah. and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But the only thing that's going to keep them in check, you know, and not, not all developers, there's a lot of developers that are really leading the way and doing things because they want to be progressive. But for 90% of the developers, the only thing that's going to keep them in check is building codes. If our building codes aren't yeah. working, which in many places they're not, then that's, that's one of the big issues we need to address. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. 
Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. Towards the end of every interview, we ask our guests to give a bit of advice to certain people in our industry. So, in no particular order, and under no pressure whatsoever, what would be your (laughs) advice to young graduate engineers entering entering the workforce today? I think it's get into our sector. And I think this this sort of sustainability discussion and sort of new technology discussion is going to attract them to the sector. So I think it, it's to get into that sector and, and go into it and, and don't listen to what all the old people in that sector are telling you. You know, go in there and change it. Agreed. Love it. Come <laughs> in and shake this house down. That's what I say to them. Right. Yep. <laughs> okay. Next question, 10 points, no conferring. Any advice particularly for women in STEM and engineering? Again, it's a tricky one for for a you know male to advise you know yes. specifically around that, that, that issues. Feel free to mansplain. I'll I'll, um, I'll bring this back to sort of my own organisation. We sort of as an engineering consultancy, we have forty percent roughly of our team is female, and I'd say about half of our management team of board are made up of females as well. And what I would say, I, I, this is this is not advice to, to women in the industry. I say this is advice to men in the industry is if you're not embracing gender diversity in your organizations, you're really, really missing out. You know, we, we get, you know, hung up on this on this political debate of, uh, you know, we have to promote equality and everything else. But, you know, that's rubbish. Women are so much better at men than men at so many things. Great. And we need to celebrate that and realize what, you know, the important role they have in the industry. And, and, you know, and for us, you know, we've not achieved these figures, you know, deliberately that this is something we want to do. We've just given equal opportunities to all. And a lot of our success is attributed to that diversity. You know, by having different viewpoints, different voices in the room, um, it definitely adds a lot. And I think we, we sponsored a Women in Construction event actually last week. And what was striking is the amount of women now entering the kind of construction engineering sector, even compared to sort of eight to 10 years ago. And I think that's that's going to, to help shape, you know, what, what's going on. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the issues in our sector is driven by the ego of males. Um, yes, and, agreed. You know, Hopefully, yeah. in, hopefully in, uh, in 10, 15 years' time, you know, that will be changed. So, yeah, in terms of, as a soundbite, I'd say it's, it's, a, it's an advice to the males in the industry, particularly sort of CEOs or C-level management. It's, it's really embraced this because if you're not, you know, you're missing out really and your organization is not as effective as it should be. Well said. Very well said there, sir. I like that a lot. Yeah. Oh, you know what? That was a bit of a mic drop for me. I've got another one, but I don't want to spoil that one. So I think... I think we should should hear what Saeed's opinion or or advice would be to to architects coming out of school. (laughs) No swearing. Your your client base is not at risk here at all. (laughs) I think it's really to understand all the other s- disciplines that are going on in buildings. Um, you know, we if you take even 20, 30 years ago, the architect had to know about everything. It was the master architect had to understand how everything came together and and, and was, was, in essence, the, the dictator of the project, you know, and had to have the skill sets to do that. You know, we've moved away from that now. It's definitely more 
collaborative environment and things. But as a consequence of that, you know, a lot of architects um, that have come through have have not got any understanding of, of other trades and everything else. And they're unable to drive the design, particularly the architectural design, in an effective way. They, they're not able to, they don't have to understand everything, but they need to be able to challenge the structural engineers, challenge the mechanical engineers and say, no, what you're telling me is rubbish. Go ahead and, and do it better. Because a lot of the time, engineers are not going to be the ones to bring innovation and new ideas in the project. Um, they'll be able to find the innovations and creativity if the architect or the client pushes them to do it. Um, so, so as architects, you need to understand these bigger pieces so you can challenge your engineering teams. And I honestly believe engineers will find a solution to any problem. And I've seen it time and time again on projects. You look at something and say, wow, we're really in a corner here. What are we going to do? And, and you know, engineers will find a solution. But you need to challenge them. If you don't challenge them, because the other trait the engineers have is that they, they can be lazy and they can just do the same thing over and over again. Um, so unless you challenge them, you don't get that. So that's that's one point for architects. But I think the other thing for, for this doesn't apply just to architects, but also to engineers, is to spend time on site projects. You know, see a project Thank all you. the way through this and then see it all the way to the end. There's this concept that we have in our industry where you have your design architect and then you have your site inspectors. You know, that doesn't make any sense. You know, no. how, how can you design something if you haven't seen the thing that you've designed all the way through and see what worked, what didn't work on site? Bring those lessons back uh, into what you do next time. And likewise, how can how can someone inspect what's going on on site if they didn't design it? You know, surely the person that's designed it has to be the person signing off. Is this how it's supposed to have been designed? Because you know, taking a this is where things a lot of things get lost. You know, for someone someone trying to interpret a design um, who hasn't designed it, you know, things get lost in interpretation. So that's that's I guess I guess two two key things I think is is quite important for the sector. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, always think about uh, it's like chefs eating their own cooking. It's like the guy or the girl <laughs> pack, packing a parachute should jump and test his own parachutes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Builders should have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, but, but but builders and architects create buildings that they never have to occupy. They don't know what it's yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's it. It's not just see things through on site. It's actually go go and see things in operation. You know what, what's working. Close the loop. Yeah. Uh, I agree with that 100%. Again, well said. I, I really find that strange. In North America, there is this real big disconnect between the design team and the on-site delivery team. And I think it's a mistake. I really do. Mm. You know, does that dis- yeah. it, it really affects your knowledge management and lessons learned. Knowledge management is yeah. one of the things our industry does badly, and it really needs to up that game. But I want to wrap up from my point of view. I found this very inspiring because I like the fact that you're optimistic despite all the things that are, you could, we could sit here for hours talking about how bad the industry sucks, right? But it's also yeah. awesome, right? It's yeah. full of awesome people. It's full of clever people. And I am very glad to hear you're optimistic about it because you're sort of in the, you know, you're a lot younger than me. Let's not get into age, but you know, you're at a point where you've got a long runway in front of you and you've got the ability to make a change here. So your optimism, I think, is justified and should be spread. And that's one of the things we've got to somehow get into universities. We've got to get this optimism and this message that there's work to be done and it can be done, right? Because technology's there, the people are there. We just somehow got to get that message down, right? And it needs to start, I think, midway through a university career. I don't know. It's got to start earlier, that is for sure, in my opinion. What about you, Robert? What do you think on that? Totally agree. Yeah? I want to, I want to go back to your age. <laughs> <laughs> Just old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Good comments. 
Yeah. Okay, I think we shall wrap up on that because I am feeling quite pumped and optimistic now. So, uh, so thank you very much for coming on. I wish you all the success in the world with your firm and I know you're going to make a difference at the Green Building Council. Keep doing what you're doing, man. The world needs you. Keep up your great work as well. We need to keep having these, these, these honest dialogues and discussions. So that, that was Saeed. He was very, I found that very inspirational. I feel quite uplifted after that conversation with him. How about you? Yeah, I'm the same way, Adam. You know, he has a lot of good information for young yeah. engineers coming out of school and for those trying to figure out what sort of field they want to go into. And he reminds us that to have hope, that uh, engineers, you know, figure out stuff. Yeah. And the, the industry is broken, and, and, uh, but they, they can fix it. And, yeah, that was, really, that was really good. So what's yeah. interesting is, so for all you engineering nerds out there, if you want to work in aerospace and work for Elon Musk, you need a 4.0 plus. So if you're not getting a 4.0, <laughs> forget about it, right? Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you need to be well connected. Yeah, and you've got to know someone who knows someone who's sleeping with someone to get the job, right? So yeah, exactly. you know, take, take that brain power. If you're getting a 3.0 in an engineering degree, you're a bloody genius probably. So take that brain power and come and fix our broken industry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah, uh, I mean, our industry needs an Elon Musk. I'm hoping one day someone will emerge with that sort of level of charisma, crazy, and brain power. That you know, that Venn diagram that come together that is Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. To- totally. I also liked his comments about you know where solutions where well where the problems are being recognized and where and where the problems are being solved at the city level. Yes. That's a message for federal governments, you yeah. know, leader, political leaders at the federal level that you guys can't get this done, we'll get it done. You know who is uh, quite inspirational and in taking a leadership position on that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I find that guy very inspirational at many levels, right? And what he did, whether you agree with his politics or not, he enacted a lot of good legislation and he really pushed the green agenda. And I think his influence is still being felt today after he's gone. Yeah. You know, and... Yeah. He's still active. He's still, you know, he's still out there pushing for this change. And the problem is, right, is this. Just because you want things to be environmentally friendly and you want low energy housing and you want, you know, you want the environment to be clean doesn't make you a lefty and a social justice warrior. No. I am a complete libertarian anti-government nutter and I want all them things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it doesn't, and this is the problem. It's the it's the their team, your team bullshit that goes on, right? It just needs to be. We everyone, no matter where you're on a political spectrum, agrees that you don't want the oceans polluted, you don't want the environment polluted. You like to breathe sweet air. You'd like to have low energy costs. Everybody agrees with that. I don't know anyone who doesn't agree with that. I I totally agree. You know, and it's funny. Like until you get to talk to community leaders. And I'll give you an example of this. I was up in Alaska giving a lecture and uh, I got stuck up in Fairbanks uh, just due to weather, which happens a lot. And, and the only way I could get the heck out of there was to get onto a small aircraft. And I ended up flying back to Anchorage with the Minister of the Interior and we had a great discussion. And he explained to me that, you know, he just came back from the coastal areas of Alaska and explaining that these communities are, in fact, melting into the ocean. The permafrost that they were founded on is no longer permafrost. So they have have that issue. 
Then they have the social issues where a lot of the young peoples have left these communities and what's left behind is the elderly and the elderly, of course, and, and there's a lot of substance abuse. So, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a climate issue, there's social issues, all of these types of things. Well, if the federal guys can't get out of their damn offices and go see this shit, you know, the municipalities have to deal with it. So for them, this is a real in-their-face problem. And yep. to screw the federal guys, you know what? You have no help to us. Yeah. You don't get it. You know, it's like you got your head in the sand, so we're going to fix it. Yeah, I, I think that's so. I'm not that up on American politics, but states' rights is what counts here, right? And then devolving as much power as possible down to your municipalities, that's where it's going to get fixed. Yeah. You know, if it's your yard that's flooding, you are going to do something about yeah. that, right? Not the guy sitting in Washington or Ottawa <laughs> or no, London, right? No, no they're, they're so disconnected <laughs> from it all. He made some, and we talked about waste in buildings, and I thought, yeah. which was really good. I, w- I wish I could have actually asked him a few more questions. Maybe we'll get it back on. Oh, we'll for meet- sure. We'll get yeah. it back one day, yeah. But he made some, some he brought up some good things that are happening, the sharing economy, the gig economy. There's some really cool things that are happening. You're, I can see your whole eyeballs just move. Yeah, <laughs> I've got so with- many ideas for apps <laughs> and businesses in my mind at the moment. But what he's saying, I think, is this, right? You've got this, again, I'm a big fan of Venn diagrams. You've got a Venn diagram, the environment, and there's, it's getting bad, right? It's, yeah. And then you've got raising energy costs. Then you've got mass population increase in urban areas. But on top of that, you've got technology and you've got big data solutions, right? You know, that thing with mosquitoes is a big data solution, right? Yeah. So all these things are converging and hopefully that will create the critical mass to get the change. I mean, making it somebody's job. Let's just say you took, I don't know, take... Take the budget for, I don't know, Toronto, right? What's the municipal budget? It's got to be hundreds of millions, right? If you took two million a year, which would is the amount of money you could find down the sofa of Rob Ford's <laughs> office, right? Take two million a year and just say, we are going to create what's called micro jobs. And that micro job is you download this app and you pick up, I know, let's say cans, aluminium cans, aluminium cans for you, Yanks. And <laughs> we will give you X when you take them to this place. So you know like the micro loan thing, getting people to start small businesses, you take two million aside or whatever it is, and you create a micro job. Yeah. And people do it as a as a side hustle and the app is free. All they have to do is get it onto a, a relatively dumb phone and there you go. Right? Yeah, you know, I think so you, <laughs> while you're while you're talking, like every city has these solar powered parking yeah. meters, you know, where you where you get out of your car, you look at the street signs, you go to the parking or the parking sign, right? You punch in your your, your license number and how much time and you and you pay, right? Yeah. Well, why couldn't every one of those things have a little map that you could say, yeah, I'm on this block and there's some garbage on the on the street here, yeah. you know, and then the, and then people could come by and say, yeah, okay, there's a need. There's a need, there's money, right? If what, you, what do you need, you know? If you monetize garbage, it will get cleared up. <laughs> it will get cleared up. Yeah. And it's not difficult. Now, the killer, the killer quote was, building codes have only been edited, not changed since the 50s and 60s. <laughs> Love that. that yeah, that was, a, that was, like you said, a mic drop right that there. It's just, boom, done, I'm out. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> See you next Tuesday. <laughs> totally, totally. And he's bang on. You know, we have to sort of just take what we've done in the past and say it's not going to work for us now and it's yeah. not working for us for the future just stop it. Just yeah, stop it. Just you know? stop. Yeah. And the whole time he was saying that, I'm thinking, you know, he's absolutely right. We need to strip it all up back down to fire and safety, right? 
create the shell. And then for me, it's okay, from there on in, let's create an energy intense, uh, utilization intensity value that buildings yeah. have to meet. And that's create a certain requirement for post-occupancy evaluations. And then you know what? Let the engineers and architects figure it out. Yeah, building code could get down to 10 pages if you did that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> all the, you, could, you could just say, forget the energy codes, forget all that other kinds of codes. You know what? The building's not going to fall down. It's not going to burn down. The rest of it, you know, we can figure out as far as energy and the post-occupancy evaluations and leave it up to those people. The professionals, right? That's what we're paid to do. Yeah, but, that was good. Oh, I think building code by KPIs. That's what we need, right? Key performance indicators. Yeah. That's the solution. All we've got to do is find a, have a coup d'etat and get it done. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I think Saeed has got a big career in front of him and we have to get him back on maybe next year and see how he's doing with it because, you know, he's a mover and a shaker as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. He said something awesome, which we have never heard anybody else not really directly say. Uh, that was with regards to when you asked him about women, women in, in the industry. And his answer was very elegant, very well thought out that, you know, he didn't have advice for women. He had advice for men. That was that was. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why he's chairman of the Green Building Council, because he he resisted the urge to mansplain. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that that was classy, very classy. Uh, And he's right, you know, I mean, if you, I mean, even in his own firm, like they practice what they're preaching, you know, that uh, gender diversity is a strength, not a weakness, that if you're not doing it, you're missing out, Your, your team is weak, you know, and it's so true. Yeah, I was at, I'm, at, I'm here down in Denver. I'm taking a course from Ashray. There's like I don't know, probably 45, 50 students. And you know what, Adam? I'm really encouraged because normally in the past, when we would see those kinds of courses, you know, if we had one, two, maybe three women in the class, but there's probably close to 15, maybe 20 women in the class. That's good, man. That is all a good young, thing. Yeah, all young ladies that are there learning about HVAC and building science, and it was really encouraging to see. So hang on. Let me set the scene here. So there's this classroom for the young ladies and young men, and you're sitting in there as a student? Yep. Top man. See? Never too late to learn. I love going to training courses and learning stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people ask me all the time, why are you in this course? You should be teaching the course. I said, that's not the point. No, the point is to get more knowledge, right? Build on your skill stack. Yeah, I uh, want to know what I want to know what the teachers are teaching. I want to know who's in the class. Yeah, and I want to know just how stupid I am. <laughs> and the way yeah. to do that is to get into those classrooms, look at what they're teaching. But what's important is the questions that get asked. That's that's normally my first takeaway from most training courses when I go. Is like, oh, I am stupid. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm never going to be ever that person that's so smart I can't learn anything. I will oh, learn I absolutely anything I can yeah. every day. Every minute of the day. I couldn't agree that's more. How, that's how dumb I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So let's, let's wrap it up there. But I think so. Well, for sure, we'll have to get him back next year. See how he's doing. All right, Adam. Okay. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.